This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome back to the Everything You Wanted to Know About podcast from the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine. I'm joined by Sir Paul Nurse for the second and final part of our series on biology. Last time we talked cells, DNA and genes, and today we'll be linking these concepts to mutations, evolution, Charles Darwin and even the poetry of his grandfather Erasmus. So, in the last episode you explained to us how genes are the basis of hereditary, but Paul, how did genes get passed on? So, heredity is central to life. Um, Every time a cell reproduces, itself, it copies its genes, the basis of heredity. And what those genes do is essentially encode the information that cells need um, to grow, divide, reproduce. And um, that information is also the basis um, for our cells. We're made up of, of many, many cells, of course, um, but when we reproduce, we reproduce through a single cell. So we receive those genes through the sperm, which is one cell, and the egg, which is another, that come together. And it is through heredity that we get evolution by natural selection. So let me just sort of describe that very briefly. This is Charles Darwin's great idea. And it, it works like uh, works like this, really. So, and I'm going to talk about it, not uh, in terms of human beings or plants and so on, but back to cells, because cells show it in its simplest form. So imagine you've got cells um, growing and reproducing, and let's imagine they've got, um, say, a red coat. 
And let's say that the red coat is very attractive to a predator. It likes eating cells which are red, okay? So now, um, that red coat is caused by um, a gene which says have a red coat. Now, let's now imagine a mutation occurs in that gene, so the coat is blue, right? Now, maybe if you're a, a blue cell, uh, your predator doesn't like to eat you. It doesn't like the look of you, okay? So if you now have a, um, a mutation that makes a blue cell, that won't be eaten, and so that survives and divides much more efficiently than a red cell. So you've turned a red cell into a blue cell, and that, and that blue cell works better because it doesn't get eaten by something else. And that's a very simple example of evolution by natural selection. And if you imagine that happening in far more complicated situations like our reproduction, then you can see how you acquire properties which have purpose that help you live better entirely without planning, just um, by accident. And that's the, be that's the beauty of this idea. You don't need a creator or some a designer. It just happens that the variation that the hereditary brings about is selective for um, variation that actually works and is more effective at allowing the cells or the organisms to grow and reproduce. And so you get operation as a whole through this very um, random process. And it, 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 it's a way of getting um, function and, and, and things working without having them being designed. But so if mutations are key to it, how does a mutation actually happen? Yes, that's a good question. Mutations happen in a variety of ways. The, the first way is that uh, because um, genes are made up of these uh, bases, A, G, C, T, they have to be copied precisely every time they are um, uh, replicated or uh, 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 doubled. But occasionally, there'll be a mistake. So you might change an A into a G, for example, and then you have a mutation. So it occurs naturally just because of a low level of error in the way you copy DNA. It can also occur, uh, mutations, uh, if you have um, a, a DNA-damaging agent. So sunlight has got UV, and that can damage the DNA in your cells, and that can cause mutations, which is why um, certain cancers are caused by sunlight, because they damage the genes important for controlling um, the uh, division of cells, and that can lead to cancer. So DNA damage can be caused by UV light or by chemicals. Um, so there's two main ways of doing it. One is just um, normal processing of making a, a bit of a mistake when you copy DNA. Another is an external um, effect like um, radiation or um, a chemical. But not all mutations will lead to an aspect of a evolution of, of a cell. No, that's true too. It's entirely random. Um, so some mutations will just destroy the gene and kill the cell or kill the organism. Others will change the way it works. In the example I used of a red-coated cell becoming a blue-coated cell, it changes it from red to blue, um, and that may have um, consequences. Often the consequences don't help the cell or the organism very much, and just occasionally it does, and it makes it work better. 
And then that's what is selected for during evolution. So you say evolution by natural selection. So they're not the same thing, is that right? Um, evolution by natural selection. Evolution is the the change, the change of a, of a of an organism and eventually a species. Natural selection is because you select naturally, like um, uh, uh, animals in the African plain. Um, who can run faster, can run away from a lion, for example, and that's natural selection. But actually, we can also use um, um, artificial selection, human beings. So, And this is the way that uh, Darwin started to think about this, because you know there's um, people who breed pigeons, pigeon fanciers, and you get lots of different types of pigeons. And Charles Darwin used to go and talk to the pigeon fanciers and breeders. So let's say they wanted um, a pigeon with a big tail. They would select um, pigeons with big tails and mate them together. So this was artificially selecting who should mate with who. So you get bigger tails. And uh, that's pigeon fancying. But actually, that's been really important. The agricultural revolution 10,000 years ago, when we got... um, um, wheat and barley and rice and so on was because our ancestors noticed that certain plants they saw in the wild had bigger seeds and uh, and then um, selected them, crossed them together and gradually selected um, new plants that uh, actually we could now turn into agriculture. So the whole basis of agriculture depends upon artificial evolution by artificial selection. It's, uh, that's That's why we can now... Um, feed so many more people today than we could have done when we were Stone Age peoples. (laughs) So that seems to have happened quite quickly, that artificial selection of of a particular... Artificial selection can work much more quickly than natural selection because you select what you want. And so the agricultural revolution, I mean, it worked over several thousands of years. It just gradually got better and better. But even so, in evolutionary terms, that's a very uh, a very short time. And pigeon fanciers, of course, can do it in really rather quickly um, because um, uh, you, you see the whole range of different pigeons. Dog fanciers is another one. I mean, look at the immense range of different dogs from, a, you know, a little poodle through to a Great Dane. And that's all produced from a... Um, um, dogs which came from wolves originally and they've been selected for different purposes to look right to run fast to hunt and so we've got a whole range of different dogs um, which have been produced by artificial selection and so you've mentioned charles darwin and, and he was really key to to all of our understanding about evolution and natural selection is that right it is he um he was a 19th century um biologist he was um uh, quite a comfortable off man. So he was an amateur scientist because um, he could afford just to live on his inheritance. Um, and he lived in Kent, actually. Um, but his, he was famous because he went on a long um, voyage around the world in a, sh- a Royal Naval ship called HMS Beagle. And there he collected lots of um, plants and um, uh, uh, animals and studied them in the wild, and that's where he got his ideas from. But he wasn't the first to um, suggest evolution, but he was um, very important to suggest the idea of evolution 
by natural selection. Um, evolution, that is, that, that animals and plants can change, was had been talked about for 100 years before, including by Charles Darwin's grandfather, who was a very interesting character called Erasmus Darwin, um, who um, lived in Litchfield and then in Derby. Um, he, he's a fascinating character. He, he was um, um, a doctor. He wrote all his science up in the form of poetry. I've got some of his original books. So it's all verse. I mean, it's very entertaining, um, or fairly entertaining, to read it. And um, he was a, a, a doctor. He, um, he charged only charged his rich patients because he treated poor patients because they couldn't afford him. Um, he was a very good doctor, um, but largely because he was, um, he, he had one very good skill. He could tell you whether you were likely to die or not. And that meant that if you were ill, you could put your things in order. But if you were going to recover, then you didn't have to put them in order. And that might have been quite important because you might upset people with a different sort of will, I suppose. So he um, was um, he was very good at that. He was a very he was a Republican. He was asked to be, I believe, the doctor of George III, which I think he refused to do. Um, he um, was interested in all sorts of things, and he belonged to a society called the Lunar Society. This was a scientific society that met in um, the Midlands, nothing to do with universities or anything. Um, it had people like Wedgwood, who was the Potter, and uh, Dar Erasmus Darwin and so on, and they used to meet once a month under the full moon, which is why they were called the Lunar society and I, they had a good dinner i suspect they drank um, quite a lot of good wine and then they rode home at um, under the full moon after that <laughs> is that still a society today do you know it still is um it, it gets um it, it it sort of comes and goes and i've actually spoken at the lunar society in uh, in fact i think probably more than once um i'm not sure it's active at the moment but it's definitely been active during my lifetime <laughs> That's amazing. Um, your your book is is called What Is Life, um, and it wouldn't be right of me to do this interview without asking you what is life. Well, I'll have a go uh, at answering it. I have to say it's quite a difficult. Uh, it's very easy to ask. Uh, it's not quite so easy to answer, and, and it's a bit complicated because. You it, you can't answer it like a, a dictionary, you know. Uh, it, you, you know, there's one sentence that defines it. But what you can do is take the five ideas that um, that I talk about in my book, and and sort of boil them down to a, a several principles. And the first is that living thing to describe living things, and uh, living things are chemical and informational machines based on cells. And that allows them to make themselves, to maintain themselves, and to re reproduce themselves. So that's the first principle. The second one is that they have a hereditary system based on genes. Um, and genes are found in all cells, of course. And these genes are handed down through the generations. Now, if you have a living thing which has those properties, then that allows them to evolve by natural selection. Because if the genes exhibit variability, then they can evolve by natural selection and acquire purposeful behaviours. They acquire purpose. 
And so that allows life, which is a physical thing, to actually get functions and processes that leave acting as a whole as purposeful uh, to purposeful behaviours. On our planet, um, life is based upon DNA, RNA that DNA makes, and also proteins. And we haven't talked about this yet, but all of these are chemical polymers. That is, just as DNA is made of A, G, C, and T, RNA has got similar um, bases. Proteins has, and so they're like four letters, A, G, C, T. Proteins have got 20 letters. And um, uh, the DNA encodes proteins with a particular sequence. So, And it's the proteins that actually do most of the chemistry of life. So we, our life, all of us, from bacteria to us, is based on that chemistry. Now, I don't know what life looks like on elsewhere. Nobody does. We've been hearing recently about life forms maybe in, in the um, atmosphere of Venus. We don't know what it might look like. But I have a hunch that it will probably also be based on polymers because polymers can encode information. You know, if you take a computer, it's lots of um, bytes, bits, Um if you read a, a sentence, each um, word is made up of letters. If you're hearing both of us talk, we're talking with letters. All of this is digital, really. It's chains. And the chemistry, um, polymer chemistry, is also a chain. So what you get with a, a, a chemical polymer is chemistry that can do chemical reactions, but it also can encode information as well. And that is very special. Well, what kind of information could it possibly encode? Well, it in, if you think a protein is does chemistry, and that depends on having amino acids, which is what makes up proteins, in a certain order in a chain and with certain um, chemistry. Some, they, they might be um, have positive charge or negative charge. They might like water or not like water. Um, there's all different chemical properties, which and that determines what they can do. And what they can do is determined by the DNA and the sequence that um, of the nucleotides that make it. So it's an amazing system where you have both information encoded, it's an informational machine, and that encodes chemistry, and it's a chemistry machine. So what I was going to say is, I don't know what the chemistry of life will be on, you know, um, Neptune or wherever, or Venus maybe, but I'm pretty certain that it will be based on polymers. And all of this research you've done, you've, you've talked about um, working with yeast uh, for a long time in your career. Where did the fascination with biology cells and, and life for you come from? Well, I, 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 what I remember, I've always been interested in living things. And um, I sort of remember once when I was, um, I think, just a teenager, and I was sitting in my garden, which was in um, northwest London, in Wembley, where the stadium is, and um, a yellow butterfly flew over the fence. It was a brimstone yellow. It was early spring. They, they come out in March. And I watched the yellow butterfly, and it flitted about, and it settled on a flower, um, had a little feed, I think, and then I think I disturbed it and uh, it flew up and it went over the other fence going the other way. And I remember thinking, 
you know, this this butterfly, it's really a bit like me, but it's also obviously very different. So what is the same about a yellow butterfly, brimstone yellow, and me? And I think that was the start of me thinking about biology, to be quite honest. And then, of course, I was taught it at school. Um, But it was just looking at living things and thinking, what is the basis of that? And how is it like me? And how is it different? And my book goes into this, but it's amazing, really, because of evolution by natural selection, we're related to every living thing on this planet. So that butterfly is sort of my relative. And, you know, if you think more profoundly about that, you think, well, we have a responsibility to look after our relatives and we need to care for the biosphere, for all the living things you find there, because we're related to them. And not only that, but actually we depend on them too. All the food we eat, the plants and um, uh, and animals and fish, um, if we didn't have them, we couldn't survive. And um, the, the natural environment around us is so enriched by... Um, animals and plants, um, insects and so on there, that we, and we interact very closely with all living things. And so we're all connected, connected because we're related to each other, connected because we're dependent upon each other. And that's why it's so important that we maintain the biosphere. And I actually, um, and the other life forms, we have a responsibility for them is how I see it, a responsibility. That's how I end my book, actually. I say we have a responsibility for all life. And um, and and what I try to do with the book is to say, uh, is to explain what life is so we care better for life. That was Sir Paul Nurse talking about inheritance, evolution by natural selection, and his lifelong passion for biology. If you've enjoyed this podcast episode, please do subscribe wherever you're listening to us. And for more big ideas about life, visit sciencefocus.com or check out BBC Science Focus magazine on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.